Hi friends, I'm Ron Longwell, and I'm glad today um, that you're here for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is, what is this, episode five? I think this, yeah, this is episode five. All right, small milestone here. Um, so a lot has happened uh, in our world since, uh, since last week. Um, we are uh, in the midst, as, as all of you know, uh, this is not news here, right? Um, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, um, the coronavirus or COVID-19, um, or as my brother calls it, the Wuhan, which I think is funny. Um, this has uh, kind of affected us all. Um, it's changed a lot of things for most of us. Um, uh, I am I'm working from home, which I've been working from home for a long time. Uh, my son is working from home. My wife still has to go uh, to her place of employment, and we're not sure how long that will um, that will be in effect. And we're hoping that she gets some um, some permission to come uh, come home at some time. Um, but we'll, you know, we're all just like you. We're taking this um, day by day um, and uh, seeing this thing unfold. Um, I, I want to just before we kind of get started with our, uh, the 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 stuff that I intended to talk about today, which we're going to do. Uh, I want to just say a few things um, about this this um, this virus and and this. So, you know, I'm not a doctor, and so I'm not even going to try to do that kind of stuff. Um, but I I think biblically. Um, you know, I'm going to add my voice to the millions who are already commentating on this because, after all, what you need is another voice telling you about this stuff. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say a couple things um, that that I think relate to how we how we're as Christians how we should approach things like this. Um, we we live in a world as mankind has always lived in a world um, where things happen. You know, this is not heaven. This is not paradise. Um, Jesus promised, in this life, you will have trouble. Okay? Um, so we should not be surprised. Um, Peter says in the New Testament, don't be surprised um, at the fiery ordeal among you as if this was something unexpected or this is something new or you're... And he says, you're going through what everybody else in the world is going through. So that's pretty timely, I think, for us. Um, I, think it, I think it is biblical. You know, we're, we're, we're having the toilet paper crisis of 2020 here. And uh, people are starting to, to uh, hoard things and stockpile things. And I guess the only thing I want to say about that is um, it, it, it is somewhat biblical, when you see um, something like disaster looming on the horizon, when you um, when you see the potential for harm coming, um, it's it's biblical to prepare. Um, you, you might remember back in Genesis um, when Joseph is in Egypt, and um, there's a dream that the Pharaoh has that Joseph interprets, and the gist of the interpretation is. There's going to be a famine coming. And Joseph's advice is, okay, it's not coming for seven years, but we know it's coming. 
let's prepare. And so they start stockpiling grain during the seven good years so that they'll so that Egypt, the whole land, will have grain to eat during the seven lean years, right? That's not that's not being um, crazy. It's not being uh, weird. It's it's just saying, hey, there's going to be trouble ahead. Let's prepare a little bit so that um, this doesn't totally undo us. That's not an unbiblical thing. So, uh, you know, our grandparents used to um, used to have pretty big pantries uh, in their house where they. You know, they would grow big gardens and they would can food and they would store food. And most of the time it was just to get them through the winter. Um, we've kind of lost a lot of that in our society. And there's part of me that wants to say that's maybe not a good thing. So this might not help us right now, since if you haven't been preparing, um, you you probably it's, it may be hard to do now. But it is wise um, to have a pantry. Um, store up a little bit of food. We're not talking about building bunkers or, or, or anything, you know, uh, crazy. Um, but, you know, having the ability to, to take care of your family in case of a, of a downturn. And, a, and, a, and, and a, that can include maybe you lose a job and you're without income for six weeks, two months, right? Knowing how you're going to feed your family, having a little bit of stuff put by is um, can certainly take a load off during those times. So that's that's not unwise, um, and it's something that every generation previous to our own seemed to seem to do without even thinking about it. So, so I'll say that I, I think um, for those of us who are Christians, um, we need to during this time we need to balance. Our own personal safety, you know, we need to not be taking chances. Um, we need to, our, our government has said um, the smartest way, the scientists have said, the, the doctors have said the smartest way to slow the, the spread of this thing is to practice um, social distancing. That's the, that's the new, uh, new sort of buzzy term that they've come up with. Um, it's not bad advice. I think we need to do that. We need to balance that of course, with looking out for others, checking with your neighbor. If you've got a, if you've got an elderly person that you're, that you're close to and within reach of, keep tabs on them, check on them. Are they, are they okay? Are they, do they need something? Can you, you know, we are, we are called to be agents of blessing in this world. So take care of the people around you, you know, and make sure that they're doing as well as you're doing, right? Um, look after your neighbors, um, particularly those who are or elderly or um, otherwise unable to, to uh, maybe care for themselves as, as fully as, uh, as they might otherwise. Um, so continue to be, uh, be smart, be wise, take care of yourself, wash your hands. Um, I, I put something on Facebook this week. There's a passage in James chapter 4 where... I'm totally ripping this out of context, and I know that, and I admit it, but uh, the the words are there, so I think it's funny to use them. Um, there's a phrase that says, wash your hands, you sinners. <laughs> so I put that on Facebook um, as kind of a joke. But wash your hands. Wash your hands. Um, so take care of yourself, but take care of those around you too, particularly those who may not 
um, be able to take care of themselves quite as well in this. So on to the subject of today's podcast. Um, today, I want us to get to know uh, the people of Israel a little bit. So last week, uh, we talked about Abraham. God promised that he and his wife, uh, Sarah, who will be, uh, or Sarai, who will become Sarah, Sarah, um, will have a child. Um, well, at the age of 100, when Sarah, his wife, is 90, uh, they do have a son. His name will be Isaac. Isaac will grow up, and he will have a son, and his name will be Jacob. Um, there's, there's other sons here, but we're going to focus on these. Um, God will later change Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob will grow up, and he will have how many sons? Twelve. And those twelve sons of Jacob will be the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. So can you, can you name all twelve? Um, more importantly, can you sing the song? There is a song. Um, this is how we all learned this in Bible class when we were kids, right? There's a song about the 12 um, sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And I will sing it for you now um, because if you can't embarrass yourself on a podcast, what can you do? So the song, the, the, I'll, I'll list the names first. So it's Reuben, Simeon. Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Okay? Those will be the 12 tribes. So the song, the little song you teach your kids, you can sing it yourself, goes like this. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. See, it's going to be a big hit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so those will be the 12 tribes of Israel. So you'll read about them all through the Bible. Um, I'm going to pause here for another cup of coffee or another sip. Hang on just a sec. Ah, coffee. Okay, so Israel will be slaves in Egypt for uh, roughly 430 years. Now, when they come out of e Egypt which will be the Exodus. And if you've seen the old, um, uh, the old, the old movie with uh, Charlton Heston, right? Um, that's, a, that's a good place to start. Or you could watch the cartoon version, right? The Prince of Egypt, uh, which is interesting also. But that's the Exodus. That's the story of the Exodus when Israel is brought out of Egypt by God with a powerful hand. And when God, once God brings them out of Egypt... God will give them the law of Moses. And we normally think about the law of Moses as comprising the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so a, a pretty important chunk of the Old Testament. So how does the law fit into Israel's identity? Well, the law is an important part, a really important part of Israel's identity. And it served three purposes for Israel. Okay, and we need to we need to understand these. Okay, so first, first, and this is not one I hear people talking about a lot. God wanted to live among His people. Okay, God wanted to be with His people. That was why He created us. He wanted us to be in communion with Him. So when God pulls this people together that He will call Israel, He wants to live among them. Okay, 
Uh, he will tell them to create a tabernacle in their midst. Later, when they're settled in Israel, they will build a, a temple, okay, that will function kind of the same purpose, but it's more permanent. Um, that is ostensibly the place where God dwells, although Solomon recognizes God doesn't live in a building, right? Uh, didn't then, doesn't now, okay? Um, but God wants to live among his people. So if he's going to do that, if if this holy God is going to live among this people, there are some things that are going to have to happen. Those are those are holiness kind of things. So, so one function of the law is to kind of teach them what this looks like, what holiness is. As a people of God's own possession, God says in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, he will say, you are to be holy because I am holy. A holy God in the midst of a people will make the people holy. They, they need to be holy, right? It'll, it'll transfer. But understand, Israel didn't know what that meant, okay? Uh, they had just spent 430 years in Egypt. They knew they were a distinct people called by God, but they have been living largely like Egyptians uh, in Egypt for 400 years. So they needed uh, a little, what you might think of as remedial education, okay? But if a holy God is going to live among them, they were going to have to be different, okay? So one function of the law is to kind of teach them what that looks like, okay? What, is, what do we have to be if the holy God of heaven is going to live among us, all right? The second, second function of the law is to introduce Israel to the concept of atonement for sin, which, by the way, is an act of grace, okay? The fact that, that God wants to take care of the sins of mankind. Mankind has been rebellious to God. Uh, God would be just to just wipe them out, right? God wants to deal with that. God wants to atone for that. God wants to forgive those sins. He wants to maintain fellowship with this fallen people, okay? So the, the second function of the law is to introduce Israel to, this, to the, the concept, the idea of atonement, okay? So as we talked about, sin is a failure to be who God made us to be, which is his, his children, his image bearers. It is a, a rejection of the Father's reign in our lives. And as such, sin is a barrier to the intimate, loving fellowship that God wants uh, to have with each of us. He, he cannot very well have the, the, the they and me and I and them kind of fellowship that Jesus talks about in John 17. Can't very well have that with a people who just refuse to align themselves with his agenda and his program, okay? All that rebellion and corruption that has become part of the fabric of a disordered world undermines the very nature of the relationship that God wants to create with man. And so it has to be dealt with. And ultimately, God himself will deal with it. Um, but Israel doesn't understand all that is involved with that at this point. So they, they have to be schooled. The law does that. It gives them some remedial education in regard to atonement for sin. This is not the ultimate answer to sin, of course. Uh, Jesus will be the ultimate answer, but it's a remedial course. It'll, it'll get Israel used to the idea, used to some concepts that will be important later. Okay, uh, the, um, 
the uh, uh, the New Testament will say that the law is a is a tutor or a um, that's a that's a word that's very hard to translate into English. There's no real good English words for it. Um, a, the law was a tutor to lead them to Christ. Okay, is basically idea. Um, the law is a it's a temporary thing, at least in that re- regard. Um, that is to kind of hold the people together, give them some stability, some uh, some guidelines for how to live as God's people until the time that Jesus can do something, um, fulfill some of that stuff. That's the word Jesus will use. So that's the second function of the law, to introduce them to the concept of atonement. The, 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 the final and extremely important part of the law or function of the law is to show Israel how the loving community of God was to re- relate to one another and to the world. Okay, in other words, to show Israel what life with God and with others is supposed to look like and be like. Okay, and we're going to deal with we're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But before we do, we need to understand there's there's two basic parts or two basic sides to the law of Moses. There is the ceremonial component, which is the the, the laws pertaining to ritual and sacrifice and priesthood and and tabernacle and, and all those sorts of things, okay? And then there is the ethical component, which is guidelines on how to how to live with God and with others, okay? Most of us tend to think about the ceremonial component when we think about the law. And the reason we do that is because we've read the book of Hebrews, right? Um, and the book of Hebrews almost exclusively deals with the ritual and ceremonial side of things, Okay? But what we need to understand is that the ethical component is by far the heartbeat of the law. And to, to, to kind of prove that to you, I want to look at a couple of statements of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, So uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he says, uh, a very well-known passage, um, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. Okay, we've heard that. That's the golden rule, we call that, right? But Jesus adds on this this phrase right at the end of that, okay? Do whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets, okay? This is the law and the prophets. This is what the law and the prophets is about, do other, unto others as you would have them do unto you, okay? Also, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, um, which says this. Uh, one, of the, one of them, one of the, one of the Jewish leaders, uh, an expert in the law, asked Jesus a question to test him. And the question was this. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And then, because Jesus always delivers more than he's asked for, he gives him a second one. He says, The second greatest command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, All the law and the prophets depend on 
on these two commands. So Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages here, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, um, which is what the Jews would call the Shema, okay, and Leviticus 19, 18. And he says these two wrapped up together are the greatest commands and the foundation of everything that's in the law and in the prophets, okay? Uh, Scott McKnight, the, uh, the New Testament uh, scholar, he calls these two passages collectively the Jesus Creed. And he suggests that Christians kind of recite these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christians recite those every day. That is not a bad suggestion at all. Kind of focuses us, right? It, like if you don't, if you don't know anything else, if you can't remember anything else, if you're going to remember that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. As you go out into the world each day, if that is the only thing you carry with you, that's pretty darn good, right? Um, sometimes. Um, when people hear about the law, again, all they think about are the systems of, of ritual and sacrifice and salvation. But that is not the primary upshot of the law, at least not according to Jesus, right? There is a heavy moral and ethical um, dimension uh, to the law that is really its primary focus. Um, in the Ten Commandments, right, in Exodus 20, uh, if you, if you kind of look through that list, um, the first four of them uh, focus on man's relationship with God. That's the, that's the love the Lord your God part of, of the Ten Commandments. The second of those um, focus on man's relationship with man. That's the love your neighbor as yourself part. The Ten Commandments, if you'll notice, don't contain anything that has to do with um, ritual or ceremonial regulation, Right? And that's supposed to be the essence of, you know, that's the first part of the law Israel was exposed to and had nothing, no ritual, no ceremony, nothing, right? So for Israel, the law, as it embodies the two greatest commands to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, that is the key to experiencing God's blessing. Uh, in Psalm 24, uh, 3 through 5, the psalmist will write, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the upshot, again, of the law is this. You love and honor God and you treat other people right. Think of it this way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boil it down into something even simpler, okay? Ready? Love God and love like God. Love God and love like God. That is at the core of what God spoke to Moses in the law. And it became the foundation of the platform of Israelite religion. And the times in Israel's history when God was the most upset with them is when Israel forgot that and either started worshiping other gods or started mistreating people. And usually those two things went hand in hand. And the prophets 
we're always trying to call people back to loving God and loving neighbor. They were always talking about how you worship another God, you can't do this, or you're 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 treading on people, and you can't do that, right? Uh, for instance, in the book of Micah, chapter six, verse eight, which sounds remarkably familiar to what God says in the law in Deuteronomy ten twelve. Okay, Micah says this. This is probably another passage you've heard. Um, it says. Uh, Micah 6, 8, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. See? Love God and love like God. Uh, Many Christians, again, have... have, um, have grossly underestimated, misunderstood uh, what the law was all about. A, a lot of us, I think, have tended to see the law of Moses as this list of rules that Israel had to follow in order to kind of earn their salvation. And I want to say nothing, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's not that it's not that obedience to the law is not important. It is. Uh, in fact, According to Deuteronomy 30.16, the Lord cannot bless us without obedience. Uh, God says, I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you're going to possess. So obedience is important, but we got to understand how this works. It's not... It's not that if we obey, the Lord will then bless us because we've behaved ourselves, right, as a reward for good behavior. That's not how this works. Instead, obedience is choosing patterns of living and behaviors that are good for you and good for others and that just naturally cause blessing. Um, In Deuteronomy 10, 13, Moses says to Israel, keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own good, for your own good. All these commands that the Lord gives us, everything that the Lord asks us to do, they make us honest. They make us selfless. They make us fair. They make us merciful. They make us giving. They make us kind, right? And because that's so, they make our relationships better and they make us the world a better place. And we're blessed when we obey because when, we're, when we obey, we're aligning ourselves with God and His agenda. And that is the most blessed place for us to be. God designed us to thrive within His will. And if we stretch out of that, we don't thrive. Okay? So, so if, like a lot of Christians, you kind of have had this idea that the law of Moses was this, this great exam and that you had to score 100 and that the Jews woke up every morning and just thought, oh, another day burdened by this law. Oh, you've got it all wrong. According to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, the law is perfect, renewing one's life. It makes the heart glad. It makes the eyes light up, we're told. Uh, David will say in Psalm uh, 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. 
It's my meditation all day long. And the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So one thing you can do when you're reading through uh, some of that stuff in, in um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're, you're struggling, because we do, right? Um, we, we start Bible reading programs every year and we make it as far as Leviticus and then quit because it just seems so foreign to us. But one thing, one thing you can do that I think is really helpful is when you read some of that stuff and you're really grappling to try to figure out, what, what is this all about? How does this... Think about, what is, this, what is this particular passage, what is this trying to show Israel about what it means to love God? Or what is this particular passage trying to teach Israel and me about what it means to love my neighbor. Okay, what does that, what does that look like? Read, read the law through those lenses. I think you'll find that very helpful, right? Um, so God never, ever, ever, ever said, do the law in order to be saved. Remember, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai follows the Exodus. You have redemption at the Exodus, and then you get the law. Law comes after redemption, always. God has already saved Israel before he gives them the law. Okay, That's the way this works. You don't do the law in order to get saved, right? In order to make yourself right to God, um, you you do the law the 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 law um, out of gratitude for what the Lord has already done. Okay, so God calls together this this people He will call Israel, and He gives them the law. So, what is their role in the world? Well. First of all, Israel um, was to be what God will call a light to the nations. Um, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, Isaiah 49, verse 6, both use that phrase, okay? Uh, God is, uh, Israel is to be a light to the nations. And that is very clear even early on in Israel's history. Uh, built into the fabric of the law of Moses is the idea that Israel is to interact with the world around them in a way that is filled with grace and charity and mercy and kindness, okay? Um, so in Leviticus 23, 22, it says, when you gather in the harvest of your land, don't completely harvest the corners of your field and don't gather up all the gleanings of your harvest. You need to leave them for the poor and for the foreigner, I'm the Lord your God. And get this. Leviticus 19, verse 18, is the passage that Jesus quoted that says you must love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the, one of the two greatest commands, right? We just talked about that. In the context, if you read the whole context, it's talking about this is how you're to relate to your fellow Israelites. Okay. What you may not have heard is that just a few verses later uh, in Leviticus 19, we find that the Israelites were commanded to love their foreign neighbors as themselves. Here's what it says. When a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. 
the foreigner who resides with you, must be to you like a native citizen among you. So you must love him as yourself because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Okay? You guys were foreigners and you were mistreated. Don't do that to others. Right? That's the gist of it. Treat others better than you were treated. Moses will say almost exactly the same thing in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. He'll say, you are to love the resident alien. You're to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So the ways in which Israel was to treat one another with love and fairness and impartiality and justice and compassion and mercy was exactly the way that they were to treat the nations around them. Again, they were to function as agents of blessing in their world, um, blessing the people around them, showing them what life under the, light, under the reign of God is like. And Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.14 that we as Christians are the light of the world. There's a great continuity, and we'll talk about that um, probably next week, um, between who Christians are to be and who Israel was to be. Okay? So Israel was to be a light to the world around them, but they were also to be a kingdom of priests. So God says to them in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. In the New Testament, Peter will pick up on that same language and he'll apply it to the church. He says in, in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what does it mean to be a priest? Okay, a lot of us... Um, and grew up in a, in a religious body that didn't have priests, right? Particularly if you're evangelical. Um, so you, what does it mean to be a priest? Uh, we, have a, we have a priestly role in the world, Peter says. Uh, if you're a Christian, if you're a mom, a dad, if you're a family, you have a priestly role in this world. So we better understand what that means. A priest is one who mediates the presence of God to other people. That's what priests do. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor says that a priest is a, a representative person who walks the shifting boundary between heaven and earth, representing God to humans and representing humans to God and serving each in the other's name. Okay, I like that. So how do we do that? Well, a couple of ways, I think. Um, we do that um, in part because we have, we have good news of redemption and life, and we mediate redemption and life to other people. Uh, we do this because we know some things that are true, um, that we can uh, point out as, as gospel truths. Um, some of those truths lead to practices of, of respect and integrity that prevent a lot of heartache. Uh, lots of things, like we, we, we just... There's so much of, of the Bible that if we just practice it, we live better lives and we can help others live better lives, right? 
Um, we we become priests in the in the sense that we intercede for other people in prayer. Um, we are the presence of God to other people as we as we just function of agents of blessing in this world, uh, the body of Christ, and and in in doing so we embody the life of Christ. Okay, um, but every Christian, just like Israel, had a similar priestly ministry. We represent God to the world around us, bringing heaven to earth. The question I have that I'll leave you with today, and it's an important question that we will circle back to um, once we finish this initial series, and it's one of the main reasons I'm doing this podcast. And the question is this. Does the world around us really perceive us as a kingdom of priests? as agents of blessing, as mediators of heaven to earth, as a, as, a, as a people for God's own possession who are bringing heaven to earth. Is that the way the Lord sees us? And if not, why not? And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week and the week after that, and uh, just every week. Uh, we would really appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, uh, rate, and review us on um, iTunes or wherever you go. Um, it really helps us if you subscribe and rate and review us. Um, and if you can't do all those, do one of them. Rate us, right? That's the probably the biggest of those. Um, but tell others about this. I think this stuff is helpful. I, you know, I hope you do too. Um, but share it, please, if you find it helpful. Okay. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll be back. Please stay safe in the midst of the coronavirus situation and try to help those around you. And remember, you are greatly loved.